0: Well when you were in your mid twenties, that was like ninety years ago, right? So ooh. it was long enough ago. <laughs> Matt, why is your why is your like <laughs> what you make, why do you think yeah, why do you think got him a spooky sound? Like <laughs> that's just what came out. I d I I don't know why. <laughs> spooky burn <laughs> Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck-building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, Matt Morgan. I'm the Joseph Gordon-Leavitt of the week. I'm hoarding all of the Moxen to play unsleeved. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana
1: Roach. Man, that pretty much leaves only one Mox hoarder for me to be, and that's Martin Screlly, which is... A lot less fun than being Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the
0: Commander Showdown series, and thoroughly uncomfortable at the hoarders that my co-hosts have become. Anyway, all these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? We're going to hoard all the moxin and talk about money that you could have been spending while you're hoarding everything. Uh, That is partly true. We're not going to necessarily be talking about moxin because, you know, they banned in EDH. But we did want to take a look at some data regarding some of the expensive stuff in EDH. In honor of Ultimate Masters, we're going to be looking at the data surrounding the high roller cards today. But before we get started with that topic... I want to know, how were you guys' weeks? Did you play any fun games? Get any new cards? Any high-roller cards? How was it?
1: So yeah, I made a few changes to my decks this week, and one card I kind of stumbled across when I was sorting some bulk that I'm going to give a try is Psychic Possession. Do either of you two know the card? Is that the one that enchants an opponent? It is. It's two mana and two blue to enchant. It's an enchantment aura, but you enchant an opponent. You skip your draw step, and whenever an enchanted opponent draws a card, you may draw a card. So I'm trying a deck just because I'm curious how it plays. You know, basically you should, in theory, not do any worse than you are already doing. I mean, you're skipping a draw step, but if you pick one other person, you should then also draw with them, bring their draw step. But there's almost always somebody at the table who's got a deck that draws cards more than just, you know, the usual incidental amount. So I'm kind of hoping it winds up being a really nice draw engine for you know, one more mana than Frexian Arena or something. So we'll see. I'm kind of curious. I've never actually seen it played before, but I want to give it a try. So I will report back after I get a few games under my belt with it. let you know how it worked? That's a really, really cool one. I actually would really love
0: to see Psychic Possession in a Tygum Sedisi's Hand deck because Tigum makes you skip your draw step. Right, exactly. But so does the Psychic Possession. So in that case, you kind of get a regular draw step in addition to Tygum's ability at the beginning of your turn. So that would be a, a neat way to take advantage of his, quote, drawback.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a perfect deck for it, for sure. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays, just in a regular deck. I would think it's the kind of card where, if it was super amazing, somebody out there would you know be regularly running it. It's in not very many decks in EDH rec. I think I looked it up, and it was in less than 200. So I, I doubt it's some super secret game-breaking tech or anything, but I'm really curious to see how it plays. Very nice. Matt, how about you? I
0: didn't
2: get to play any games, and I'll just end with... Uh, store owners out there, please make sure that your schedules, if you guys have one online or on your Facebook page or on Wizards Event Locator, keep that up to date because people still use those. I went to a store thinking there was going to be an EDH tournament, so I wanted to go check that out, see what that was like. That didn't happen. Then I stayed for a little bit, wanted to play some modern. That didn't happen, so I asked the owner, like, do you guys not run any events? And They're like, oh, no, we don't run events anymore, Not not all this year. Okay. So like nothing ever? It's like no, just not on Saturdays. Oh. Okay, so I sat there for two hours and did not get to play a single game. That was fun.
0: Well, uh maybe I should change your intro to the salty person, Matt Morgan.
2: No, I mean it's fine, like I just now I know, and uh I know to go other places.
1: And it's also possible that they knew you were coming, and just nobody else wanted. They to They knew I had a podcast, and I was just going to just <laughs> right, berate right. them. Well, right, you were you were, inti- you were
2: intimidating. Yeah, I that's, get that. I mean, I, I brought along Miri, and just she's so scary. All I want to do is play games, guys. That's all I wanted to do.
0: Well, I'm I'm very sorry to hear that, Matt. Maybe people were just completely intimidated by you and all of your high roller cards. I mean, like, I only have one card that's worth more than, like, $10 in that deck. So so then no one's intimidated by you, and you're just very lonely, and I'm very sad about it. But let's move on to a, a different topic, then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to linger in your misery too much. as As much fun as it would be um let's move on actually before we get to that high roller data that we're interested in i actually want to start this week with head to head this is a fun segment that we like where we try and compare and contrast some data but we also force our co-hosts to guess about that data so matt how about you start us off with head to head this week
2: okay well i was thinking about adding both of these cards to mary and that was another reason i really really wanted to play um so They kind of do similar effects. One is going to be Eldrazi Monument. That is an artifact for five. that says creatures you control get plus one, plus one, have flying and indestructible. Then at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice a creature. If you can't, sacrifice Eldrazi Monument. And we're going to compare that against True Conviction, which is an enchantment for three and three white, so six drop. And it says creatures you control have double strike and lifelink. Which
0: do you guys think is played in more decks in general? I would have to guess Eldrazi Monument just because it's colorless. Okay. And it was in a
1: pre-con where I don't think True Conviction, True ever Conviction was. True Conviction wasn't a pre-con. Plus, was it? Okay. Plus that Triple White is really tricky to hit. But I think True Conviction is probably generically useful more often than Eldrazi Monument is. But I will also go with Monument over okay. True
2: Conviction. Well, you guys are not starting this episode off very well because True Conviction is played in more. Really? True Conviction wow, is played in eleven thousand eight hundred and ninety-two decks compared to Eldrazi Monuments, ten thousand six hundred and eighty-two. So that triple white, that one more mana overall, double strike and lifelink, man. It's 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 intense.
0: That's really good to hear. I
1: wonder if it, it, part they're of that... both really strong cards. Yeah, they're they're both
2: yeah great. They're they're both wonderful, and, and Miri's kind of a go wide, so just being able to to increase my damage output. Especially in green white, where I'm playing a little more fair than most, it's
0: both are very very potent cards. I wonder if part of that is informed by the fact that Eldrazi monuments, the the precon that it came in is the Marin of Clan Nelthoth precon, and before that, like it it was very very expensive card, and that particular reprint and the popularity of that particular commander product probably you know put the uh, the price way far down, but before then there was just a price barrier to entry for that card. So I wonder if that's something that informs the statistics there.
2: Yeah, well well so Eldrazi Monument currently is seven ninety nine at Card Kingdom. And True Conviction keeps going up and down a little bit too. It's it's not a budget card. I mean it's it's four forty nine on card kingdom right now. So it's not expensive, but it's not cheap. I mean it's in that, you know, five dollar like very powerful
0: card range. Yeah. And you know prices and the data associated with the prices that's definitely something of interest to us especially on this episode that's a really cool one so moving on to dana how about your head to head
1: uh sure well last week i had used ancient tomb for one of my cards to talk about and as we talking about expensive cards ancient tomb is still pretty pricey so that got me thinking about the budget versions of ancient tomb Temple of the False God is obviously one, but that has came in so many pre-cons that it's really not worth talking the stats on it, since it's in just an absurd amount of decks. So that leaves me with two more cards that can be tapped for two mana. That's Shrine of the Forsaken Gods, and Untadaki the Cloud Keeper. Untadaki is a legendary land that comes into play tapped, and you can pay two life to add two mana to your mana pool, but you can only use it to play legendary spells. So it's quite a bit worse in Ancient Tomb and that it comes into play tapped and it can only be used for legendary spells. But there's still decks where it does a decent amount of work compared to Shrine of the Forsaken Gods, which can always be tapped for a colorless and doesn't come into play tapped. And you can tap to add two to your mana pool and spend this mana only to cast colorless spells and only if you control seven or more lands. So of those two lands, the two budget Ancient Tomb replacements, which sees more play in more decks?
2: I'm gonna go with the first one because people care a little more about casting legendaries just because of the commander aspect of commander.
0: Plus, since the planeswalkers were changed recently to be legendary as well, I wonder if that might influence it too. I'm, uh, yeah, Matt. I think I'm I'm siding with you on that. I think that that might influence those numbers. That rule change.
1: Well, gentlemen, we are really not getting off to a good start uh, here because you are what? both incorrect. <laughs> Darn. Shrine of the Forsaken Gods is in 4,737 decks, so over 4,700. And Untadaki, the Cloud Keeper, is in 585 well, decks.
2: That seems like a really good candidate to challenge some stats on, because that seems really low for what it does.
0: I don't know. I don't think either of them Especially are all that great. Especially
1: since that change. I don't think either of them that great either, but I do run Untadaki in at least one, Oh, I had it in two decks. I've got it in my Rekki deck, and I was running it in... Um, arvad so there are decks where it makes sense it's not useless but 500 seems does seem a little bit low given the amount of super friends decks out there that kind of thing i mean well that and like shrine
2: of the forsaken gods like it's just you have to be playing like either artifact or eldrazi tribal for that card to be even worth playing period right so
1: and then and it still doesn't do anything useful really until turn seven I mean, I could see it maybe in, like, an Ulamog deck where you've got a ridiculous amount of artifact ramp and the colorless doesn't ever hurt you.
2: But then it's just, like, at that point, it's like a bad Temple of the False God.
0: Right.
1: Um, but it always yeah. taps for a colorless. Yeah, on so, that um,
2: we, we know how I feel so about Temple of the False it's God, a waste. too, so...
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we do. All right. Let's finish up with my head-to-head. I am interested to see if you guys can guess the popularity of some partner pairings. So specifically, I'm going to be looking at the whiteless partner pairings of Vile Smasher the Fierce plus Thracios Trident Hero versus Vile Smasher the Fierce plus Cadell Chosen of crufix Which of those partners do you think is a more popular pairing for Vile Smasher, Thracios or Cadell?
2: Uh,
0: Thracios,
1: because that's what all the competitive kids play. Well, just to guarantee we don't get skunked this time <laughs> through. <laughs> I'm gonna i I'm gonna go with Cadell. And actually I, I was probably gonna go well. Uh-oh. Uh I do think Ther- I do think it's Thrasios. I agree. It's good. you know what? We'll take the risk. I'm gonna go with Thrasios as well. That's let's what go I think let's go bigger go
2: home.
0: Is. And we might be going home early. Exactly. Nope. You guys have finally hit okay. one you are correct. There are right. currently 377 <laughs> Thrasios and Vile Smasher decks registered on the site and 364 Kaidel and Vile Smasher decks registered on the site. So, good job. We did it.
1: Yay us. <laughs> we we didn't strike out. Listen, in baseball, batting 333 is pretty It's impressive. really good.
0: And in podcasting, it's not.
2: Is there is there like a way to like test our averages though because I feel like we're comparing that to a bunch of nothing. It's all about the feel.
0: I, I suppose. I don't know. I'm I'm afraid of getting data on how good I am because I have lost a lot of bets to you. So I'm not sure that I'd be happy with my average percentage That's of true. accuracy. So though.
2: maybe maybe you should take the 333 and uh, you know be
0: happy with it. Yeah, yeah. Or I can just make up some numbers. I'll say that I'm right 78% of the time <laughs> and this was just a fluke of a week. Anyway... <laughs> Let's move on now to the more interesting topic. Now that we're finished up with Head to Head, we wanted to talk about some expensive cards. Since, you know, Ultimate Masters is coming out and it is chock full of expensive cards, we decided to pull some reports for a bunch of different categories. Dana, do you mind running us through the different categories that we're going to look at for these statistics?
1: Sure. So we're going to go over the popularity of the very most expensive legal cards in EDH. And we've got a category of the most popular cards, over $100. We have a category that's the average deck cost by commander, meaning which which commander has the most most expensive decks built around them. Uh, We have a category that is average price by number of colors. And last, we have an average price of decks with that color and other colors, too.
0: Right. And we also kind of wanted to take a look at the average prices by color identity as well. So a whole bunch of reports and hopefully the findings should be pretty fascinating. Of course, before we actually look at the data that we're seeing here, we do want to acknowledge that there could be some biases in the statistics that we've pulled. Since, you know, all of the decks that EDHREx scrapes are from user submitted areas online in different deck building websites, we wanted to, you know, verify that there are some possible Hiccups in the data that we felt, you know, are worthwhile to acknowledge. Matt, do you mind running us through what some of those biases might be, just so that we can have better context for all that data?
2: Sure. So a couple of them that we wanted to point out to everybody beforehand: people falsely reporting ownership, or just having them at all, whether it's multiple copies or just one. You know, I would love to have ta- uh, chains of Mephistopheles, for example, or Tabernacle, or anything like that. But I don't. So if I ever put those into a list online, would, it would skew the data a little bit price fluctuations it happens all the time reprints are coming out you know with ultimate masters we can't track the the data over time with that changing so much that means we constantly have to be going through and updating it so it's not going to be the most current it's just kind of a, a quick snapshot of what their prices are in the relative past um, or relatively you know recent past i should say foils are not taken to account here we just take the base near mint price on card kingdom um, and that's what we apply to the the costs that we construct everything with here
0: right and those are definitely some useful things to keep in mind when we take a look at these it is certainly possible that even if i only have you know one vampiric tutor that i might actually put it in multiple lists if i make multiple lists online sort of the way that if you were to play magic online if you had one copy you could put it in multiple edh decks that's entirely possible that the data that we're getting is a little skewed by that type of information
2: right exactly so like if somebody like proxies up a deck for example right that too. that that might be throwing us off, so even though you know they have you know all their a b u duels, they have everything high rolling legend sylvan library, it doesn't really count because it's proxy, so it throws off the numbers a little bit, but it's still cards that people want to be
0: playing, obviously otherwise they wouldn't be proxying them right. So, with those aside, as long as we've acknowledged those, let's get into the data itself. Like Dana mentioned, we're going to be starting off with the popularity of the very most expensive legal cards in EDH. No black lotuses here. Let's start off with, we've got a top five here of the most expensive cards, and their popularity is pretty interesting, I'd say. Number one is the card Time Twister. That card is currently $3,500. Slight panic attack at that price, and it's showing up in 2,652 decks, according to EDHREC. After that, we've got the Tabernacle at Pendrel Vale, $2,900, which is only showing up in 976. We also have Mishra's Workshop at 2,200 in 1,400 decks, Bazaar of Baghdad, 1,900 in 727 decks, and then Candelabra of Thanos, a $1,000 card that is showing up in 915 decks. I know that was a whole ton of numbers, but guys, what do you think of these very, very expensive cards, and what do you think especially of their popularity?
1: Well, the first thing I wanted to ask, is: any of you two actually seen any of these cards in an actual EDH game? In a real version, not a proxy version. Like, have any of you guys seen anyone drop one of those top five cards? I have... can't say that I have. I have seen
2: a few of them. So I've seen a Time Twister. A bunch of my buddies back in Missouri, they play a lot of old school magic, like I mentioned a couple times. So they have all sorts of power, all sorts of fun stuff like that. So I've seen some Time Twisters. Uh, I've seen one of my buddies who plays lands in Legacy. He has a Tabernacle, so he'll put it into uh, his mono red deck of all places. And I have seen a Bazaar because another buddy plays Dredge and Vintage. So he put it in his uh, uh, Hannah deck, actually. Which was really interesting, but he really likes playing it. So, yeah, I've seen I've seen a few of them. Hmm.
1: I think the the first EDH game I ever played in a shop because when I first started playing, it was just myself and a friend of mine, and we finally were like, let's you know find a shop to play in around here. So we went there, and the first night we played with somebody else in literally the very first game, the guy opened Mountain into Candelabra. Hmm. Wow! Now at the time, I think it was like a three hundred ish dollar card or four hundred dollar card. This is like five years ago or so. Um, but yeah, that was in like my first commander game ever, and I don't think I've seen anything else on the list since then. I know I've played against at least one deck that purportedly had a Tabernacle in it, but it didn't come out in the game. But other than that, yeah, I have not seen any of these cards out in the wild in commander. Yeah,
2: if we're talking just going to a new shop or going to a GP, anything like that, I've never seen any of these five. I know, like a, like we've talked about you know, in, in several episodes before, I play a lot of Eternal formats, so all my buddies happen to as well. Um, I know that's very, very much the outlier. If you're just playing with your buddies, chances are nobody's going to spend a cool $1,500 on one piece of cardboard.
0: Right, and a lot of the prices for these particular cards are not necessarily informed by our format. They're informed by things like Vintage and Legacy. Time Twister gives you, everyone shuffles their hand, and then you get seven new cards, and its low, low cost is really good for older formats that have a ton of Moxin in them. And things like Mishra's Workshop is really expensive because it allows you to power out a bunch of really cheap artifacts, including, I think, Lodestone Golem, which then means that your opponent in Vintage can't play any of their Moxin because you need to, those to be zero cost instead of one cost or something it like doesn't, that. Like it doesn't affect the prices, Moxin, but
2: it's okay. Well, it's not your
0: format. It, yeah, <laughs> is it is it showing that I uh, play like this in Limited and that's Yeah, it, it? It is oh, showing, but we, we love you anyways. well thanks very much but what did you guys think of the popularity of these particular cards i was really struck by time twister showing up in the most decks here
2: i think time twister is the only card among these that is really worth playing like unless you're playing a super super heavy graveyard theme bazaar is okay but all of these for what they do in commander are terribly overpriced you can get so much more bang for your buck and and buy a three dollar version of something that just isn't on the reserve list. Uh, Time Twister, you can play Days Undoing, and there's not a huge, huge difference other than Days Undoing ends your turn. But if you're looking for that massive loot effect and putting everything in your graveyard, back in your library and all that, just play Days Undoing, and it's like a, what, $3, $4 card instead of $3,500.
1: Yeah, I I think Time Twister is the one that's most generically useful in decks. Um, I mean, they all do see some play in EDH, technically Tabernacle, in... You know, I've seen it in some really super high-end stacks lists, and Mishra's Workshop I've seen in some real high-end Kozilek decks. Bizarre I think I've seen in some really um, competitive Gitarg Monster decks. Candelabra, the, the deck I saw it played in, the guy was just playing mono red with a bunch of mana doublers. So any mono deck with a bunch of doublers, Candelabra is probably useful. But Time Twister is just a pretty solid card no matter what. And I would also guess the reason it's has a little more popularity here is i think it gets played in the real high-end version of the mono blue teferi uh, planeswalker deck so that's probably why it has a little more pl- more uh presentation or excuse me a little more representation here than the other cards is it's the one that probably shows up the most in cedh i would guess
0: yeah and that's really it like the things where you're going to see a lot of these cards is in the CEDH, the competitive versions of EDH. I was reassured, though. I mean, we can see 2,652 decks for the most expensive card, Time Twister. But all in all, that's not really too much. I mean, there are like twice as much of, of like Atraxa decks on, on the website compared to that. You know, things like Bizarre of Baghdad is only showing up in 727. So it's at least kind of reassuring to see that people aren't necessarily going out of their way for cards like these.
2: Yeah, and you can't really blame them either. Just what they do, especially for the monetary cost, it's just not worth
0: it. Right. And that's why we wanted to also pull a report for the most popular cards that are over $100. So when we pull that report, we're seeing much, much bigger popularity. So from this, we can see that the most popular card over $100, according to the site, is going to be Mana Crypt. We all know that zero mana rock that taps for two. Really, really aggressively good, and that's showing up in 25,449 decks. Definitely really impressive there, especially when you compare it to the next most popular expensive card, which is Mox Diamond, and that's in 10,000 decks. That's quite a drop-off from 15, like, from 25 to to 10. That's a difference of 15,000. Like, that's that's quite steep.
2: Yeah, 250% more. And and Mana Crypt is the only one here for a little bit that we're going to cover that isn't on the reserve list. I know that plays a a pretty big impact on just how many people can get their hands on these cards. And it was also reprinted in in Eternal Masters. Yeah. Uh, So it put a lot of copies out there. Um, I know I had one until I sold it because I just, I wasn't playing that Narset deck anymore. It wasn't you know that that much fun for me at that point. So I sold it and bought my entire Valduk deck and then some with how much I sold it for.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Crypt is the only card till you get down to like Max Opal at slot fourteen that isn't the Reserve list. And I would guess that gap between Crypt and the number two card on the list is just going to continue to increase because Mana had two printings mm-hmm. in the last what three years mm-hmm. between that and. There was a masterpiece version. And it's going to show up again. It'll show up in, you know, Battle Bond 2 or something, or Conspiracy 3, and then it'll show up in a master set in 2023 or something. Like it's just going to get reprinted conservatively, probably at Mythic, but like we'll see it again, you know, every couple years for the foreseeable future. So people will be able to add those to their collections. The price will continue to drop on it. Whereas the you know, 10 cards after it are just the copies that are out there are out there and that's it.
0: Right. That definitely makes a lot of sense. And Mana Crypt, I mean, it's easy to see why that would be so popular. It's another copy of your Soul Ring, kind of. And we love Soul Ring in this format. Moving on to some of the other popular cards that we're seeing here, these show up at a rate of about 96 to $9,500. we are seeing a bunch of the dual lands. So we've got Scrubland, Savannah, Bayou, Underground Sea, Tropical Island, Badlands, Tundra, Taiga, Plateau, Volcanic Island, in that order. All of those also show up among the top 15 most expensive and most played cards in the format. I guess so I'm the not top, surprised. The top,
1: yeah, the top 15 slots are all either Mana Rocks or lands.
0: Yeah. You know what? That's true. Interspersed among some of those here, we also have cards like Grim Monolith, a reserveless List mana rock. We've also got Gaia's Cradle, a ridiculous land. And we also have Mox Opal. So yeah, Dana, you're totally right. All of the most expensive cards provide mana.
1: Yeah. They're expensive rocks, expensive lands, and they're ones that go in your decks of the appropriate colors in the case of the lands. But in any deck, in the case of the Rocks, and are just the, the best functional version of that thing you want to do. So the dual end is the best dual land you can run. Those original alpha beta duels are the best two-color producing mana land you can get. You know, Grim Monolith is the best rock that isn't a zero cost, and you have all the zero cost ones you can play in here, between Mox Diamond and Mox Opal and Mana Crypt. So these are just the best of the best, unlike that top five list where a lot of it is just super expensive cards, these cards earn their slot via power. Right. So those cards,
0: the ones at the top were around the 96 to 9,500 range, and it goes down to about the 7,500 range or so. After that, we've got some pretty interesting stuff that starts to deviate from the Mana Rock formula. Matt, are there any that stand out to you?
2: So number 16 is Imperial Seal, just a one-mana tutor, only printed once in Portal Three Kingdoms, was it, guys? I believe so. Yeah, and then a little bit further down, Uh, You have Grim Tutor at number 20, another one-printing tutor that's very, very old. And then, uh, interestingly enough, two kind of artifact, kind of ramp-related cards. But 21 and 22 are Transmute Artifact and Power Artifact, which I thought were
0: very, very interesting. Yeah, so seeing those tutors on there, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised by those either, because even cards like Demonic Tutor nowadays are really going up and up and up in price. So it's interesting to see those tutors there. What about the, uh, the Artifact modifier cards that we're seeing, those expensive ones there? What's so fascinating about them to you?
2: They're just kind of narrow. Uh, they only go in Artifact decks, so seeing them played in as many decks as they are, uh, Transmute Artifact is played in 1936 decks, and Power Artifact is in 1741 decks. So one thing that we also need to keep in mind, you just heard me give you the guys the numbers, 1900 and 1700, that is a huge, huge step down from where all the dual lands were, where you know they were at you know seventy five hundred plus decks, uh, Imperial Seal being at number sixteen is in thirty five hundred decks. The number fifteen card is Volcanic Island with seventy five hundred and six decks. So there is a massive, almost twice the amount drop off between Volcanic Island and Imperial Seal. So the numbers drop down, but it's still interesting in the non land, non mana fixing category, I guess, seeing kind of narrow cards like Transmute and Power Artifact being played up just up high in the list as much as they are.
1: What's interesting about them, though, I think the comparison is kind of curious, because you have Transmute and Power Artifact, but those are both really strong combo pieces. Yes, yeah, very um, much. And, they, and they, tend to win you, they tend to win you the game in those colors versus Imperial Seal and particularly Grim Tutor. They're strong in that they're tutor effects, but Imperial Seal is maybe the third best black tutor. And I'm not sure Grim Tutor is better than Diabolic Tutor, it's just that when you're playing at that bleeding competitive edge, you want every single tutor possible, and that means Grim Tutor becomes a useful card because you want every possible permutation of that ability. So you have, on the black side there, are those two cards that are good because you want as many copies of them as possible, and you have those two blue cards that themselves in the decks you run them are game-ending... And I think they kind of all four then show up in the same type of deck, which is people that are playing in that absolute no-fat-on-your-deck-perfect CEDH-level build. Yeah.
2: yeah, and and the big thing, I I was just kind of looking at the numbers real quick. So if you want a Grim Tutor, it's $249.99 American via Card Kingdom. You can pay less than 1% of that to pay one mana for a Demonic Tutor. Um <laughs> Yeah, right. So yeah. <laughs> it's 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 completely a rarity thing. It's not a power level issue at all. One mana in ninety-nine point nine percent of playgroups, that one extra mana is not gonna be worth that two hundred and forty nine dollar and fifty cent difference. Right. Except it gives you a second copy of it, yeah. essentially.
1: Which is why the same the same reason, like not that it's probably on this list, but the same reason three visits, which is a cop which is basically nature's lore, is worth seventy five or eighty dollars, and nature's lore is worth a dollar.
0: Yeah, and that's definitely one of the things uh, that we want to take away from this, is just because these cards are very expensive. Like, often expensive cards are associated with cards that help you win the game, but, you know, not always. We don't necessarily need a bunch of these high-roller cards, because a dual land, while nice that it's fetchable, while awesome that you can get it and it will be untapped and can provide you with multiple mana, sometimes a guild gate will do you just fine.
2: Yeah, it ultimately comes down to, at least for me and my experiences, I'm sure you guys, just from how we've kind of talked on the podcast since the beginning, it's all about how competitive you want your playgroup to be. If you guys are a little more casual, you're not really caring about, you know, powering out turn three, turn four kills, most of these cards, they're fine if you have one, play it, sure. But it's not going to affect your win percentage all that much, especially in a singleton format like Commander.
0: And Dana, I really do like that observation that so many of the most expensive cards that we're seeing here are related to mana. I think that's really fascinating, and it really shows how much this, like these types of cards are associated with competitive decks that are trying to smooth out their resources as easily as possible so that they can reach a really quick win.
2: Yeah, and, and mana is very important just for the game in general. That That's one of the big uh, outcries, at least in, in my experience, that I've seen people wanting you know, to get their hands on reserveless cards because they want everything to be smoother. They want to be able to cast their expensive cards they do have. So you know, naturally, the mana is going to be you know going up in price along with that.
0: Right. Let's move on to another report that we've got here. We wanted to also take a look at the average cost of a deck by the commander of a deck. So we're just looking at the most expensive average decks here, and I found this data to be pretty interesting. Dana, will you tell us about
1: the data? Sure. So the The average cost by Commander, the most expensive build is a partner deck, actually, Thrasios and Timna the Weaver. And the next one on the list is Sliver Queen, followed by another partner pair, which is Silas, Wren, and Thrasios. Then you have Teferi, uh, Leovold, who is actually banned, uh, Mishra Artificial Prodigy, uh, Zhao Dune the One-Eyed, another partner pair in Tana the Bloodsaur and Timna. Thrasios and Vile Smasher, and running off the top 10 is Kess Dissident Mage.
0: Right. There are a whole ton of partner pairs. Before we even get into the actual average cost of each of these decks, I was really struck by how many partner pairings we're seeing here. And Dana, I think it totally goes to the exact complaint that you made on our partner episode about how sometimes those partner decks end up becoming just good stuff excuses, as it were.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, that's what it is. These are, these are probably decks that people are building to play competitive EDH, which I'm, that, there's no, like, I'm not knocking that or anything. And which is probably why then the value is so high. These people are probably running, is you know, the full suite of dual lands in these decks are probably running those Mox Diamonds, your Mox Opals, your Lion's Eye Diamond for the fast, quick, aggressive mana, every tutor they can run. So then you're hitting Imperial Seal and Grim Tutor. So yeah, I think that's what de- definitely those four are slotted in here for those purposes. I don't right. think there's anything specifically about Thrasios and how Thrasios is built or Timna and how Timna is built that is requiring expensive cards. It's just those decks are being put together for the color combination and because the commanders are useful and then their people are putting in expensive cards around them.
0: Well, it certainly points to, I mean, Thrasios shows up three times among the top 10 most expensive average decks that we're seeing here. And I mean... That, to me, does say something about how easy it is for him to go wild and crazy. If all you need is an infinite mana combo with something like a Candelabra of Tano's, then Thrasios will draw your entire deck. So we're certainly seeing a testament to his power level here.
2: Yeah, I think another thing that should be noted out here, too, is outside of Ziao Dune, the One-Eyed, which is a mono-black commander, everything here is, is three or more colors. And so it just kind of puts mm-hmm. a premium on... You know, how many colors am I running? I got to run that much more mana fixing. I got to play that many more, maybe not, you know, reserve list duels, but shock lands, check lands, fetches, et cetera. Uh, it puts a premium on, you know, that, that mana base where, you know, that's taken up a chunk. At least I would be more than willing to bet a little bit that a, a majority of these prices are coming from the, the mana base itself.
1: We are there's also te- seeing there's Teferi. Also teferi in the, yeah, Teferi is in the list, and I'm wondering if Time Twister alone isn't, pushing that into the top 10.
0: (laughs) Right. But we also know that Teferi himself is one of the most hyper-competitive decks, too. So that, again, speaks to that.
2: Yeah. Well, and I mean, like you look at Underground Sea, we mentioned is one of the most expensive dual lands. All of these have blue and black in them outside of Teferi and Zihao Dune.
1: Yeah, and Sliver Queen is a five-color combo deck as well. I, I think it's kind of been replaced in a lot of cases by... General Tazeri, but but originally that was kind of the go-to five color commander for a combo deck playing competitively.
0: Right. Sliver Queen is one of the more interesting things for me here because she is also a reserve list card, and therefore that as a commander card itself is very expensive. But for the most part, a lot of the other commanders that we're seeing on these top ten lists are not necessarily like you know backbreakingly, wallet-crushingly expensive cards on their own. Things like Dun, I think, might also be very expensive, although I'm not sure he, off the top of my head, but something like Yeah,
2: he is a $120 commander by himself, and that's just
0: because he's... Okay, well, then never he's, mind. He's a
2: Portal <laughs> Three Kingdoms card, and looking at the list there, there's only 161 Dun decks out there. I would be willing to bet a lot of them are probably theme decks because with with that few and that old of a commander, like that niche, I guess, I'm sure they're probably just playing as many P3K cards that they can find, putting them in a deck, and it just naturally racks up a pretty hefty price tag
0: that That makes sense i just meant to point out that cards like mishra artifice or prodigy are not exactly breaking the bank so it's interesting to see that dichotomy all of these expensive cards are not just based off of the expensiveness of their actual commander Let's actually get into some of the prices that we're seeing here, too. So Dana ran down the list of the top 10, but let's actually take a look at some of those prices. So the top one was Thrasios and Timna the Weaver, and we've got about 346 decks for that partner pairing, according to the website. The average cost of this deck is $3,300. After that, we've got Sliver Queen, who's going in at $22.25 as an average cost per deck. The next pairing was Silas, Wren, and Thrasios at about $21.80. And after that, we're sort of middling around the 19 to 1800 range for a few of them on down. What do you guys make of these prices? Is this what you expected the high curve, the high cost of an average EDH deck to be? What's the most expensive deck that you imagined? I'm just wondering what your presuppositions were compared to the data.
1: Huh. It's hard to say because I've seen some expensive decks. Um, Don Miner, who runs EDH Rack, the mastermind behind the website. I've played against a couple of his decks. Um, he's got a mono black Chainer deck that has the Abyss in it, and has I think another Void in it. A couple other fairly expensive. There's a Grim Tutor. He has an Imperial Seal. So I mean, I've seen decks that I that are definitely in that range, but but I guess I wasn't sure. I, that that seemed like a super outlier. I, I was thinking it was going to be a little lower than this. I was surprised to see the Thrasios Tim the deck averaging. Over three thousand dollars, and that's not counting foils or anything along those lines.
2: Yeah, that, that's the crazy part is that these are all average prices. Uh, right. So th- for every you know budget, you know kitchen table Thrasios and Timna deck somebody has it costs you know two hundred bucks. Somebody's got one that's costing you know five grand. That's just crazy to me. Like when I go through and build all my decks, like most of them are going to be you know with a, a decent mana base. Maybe a duel or two, like in the three four hundred dollar range, and so seeing all these average thirty three hundred, averaging, you know, two grand plus, like
1: that's just it blows my mind. I think I think part of the reason it's, I'm a little bit thrown by it too is I tend to forget how much in the last year or two or three prices have gone up. You know, I'm, I still kind of in my head. I'm thinking, oh, Savannah's uh, $75 card. No, because I bought it for 60 But I bought it for 60, so it must be $75 now. Even though I know it's not, so it's easy to fall in that trap too. Like Matt mentioned, I put a few duels in my deck. And I figured I'm at $400. Well, the cheapest duel I think is 200 at this point. So that anymore, that's not even really true. If you put, you know, if you've got three duels in your three color deck, you're probably right there. Even in the cheapest color combinations, you're probably still at $700.
2: Yeah, well, looking at the numbers, and now that I'm thinking about it, just listening to you, Dana, my Moldrotha deck is probably pretty close to the the average Leavold emissary trust deck. So Leavold you didn't you didn't pay that probably for? Oh no, far. not you at all. I
1: those lands when they were not you know, at all seventy five dollars apiece. but
2: so the average Leavold deck uh, out of the eight hundred you know decks that we have on the site, the average cost is eighteen hundred and sixty two dollars. My Moldrotha deck is probably right around there because I have cards like Underground Sea. I have a Bayou and I have a Tropical Island. So those cards alone, you know, Underground Sea is probably about $600. Uh, bayou is probably $250. Tropical Island, about the same. So, I mean, right there, that's that's over $1,000. That leaves, you know, a couple hundred bucks to fill out the deck. And I'm sure I have a couple expensive pieces in there. I have some foils in the well, if we're not counting foils. But yeah, like, I, I very much can imagine my deck hitting, especially using card kingdom prices, hitting that $1,800 limit. So, yeah, just with you know, I bought my underground C's, you know, several several years ago, for two hundred dollars. I bought my
1: which was stiff, which, which is which probably felt ridiculous. Yeah, at the which time.
2: yeah, I, I I definitely had to swallow hard and and you know bite the bullet a little bit to get the ones that I have. Same with Bayou, I bought mine for one hundred and five dollars, and now they're you know over double that. So yeah, it, like you think about it, and it's, if you've been playing for a while, it stinks for new players because you know they see all these prices and like, man, that's. It's hard to attain. Luckily, in our our format, unless you're playing at the highest levels, at the most competitive, the money that you invest in in some of the stuff like dual lands, it's not going to have near as much of an impact as it would other places, you know, say, you know, power level wise, at least.
0: That's pretty interesting. Just as someone who's, you know, never had any dual lands myself, it is interesting to think about the... That data, I mean, we are only seeing the prices, you know, a current snapshot of prices, but yeah, the fluctuation in prices and increasing prices for especially a lot of these high roller and reserve list cards. That's definitely something to take into account when looking at all of the average costs of these really expensive decks and such. So, that's pretty interesting. I'd like to move on now to the average price by number of colors. This is my personal favorite graph, and I found it really, really fascinating. When we take a look at the average number of colors and their average prices associated with that, you get something pretty pretty fancy, I think. So, a deck that has just one color in it, on average, the cost of that deck will be around $495. A deck with two colors will be around $488. Then when we move up, we get to see much, much bigger numbers, which I'm sure surprises no one. A deck with three colors tends to be around 720. A deck with four colors tends to be around 949. And a deck with five colors is just over 1,000 at 1,003. What do you guys make of these numbers? Because I think they're fancy.
2: That makes sense. I mean, when you have one and two color decks, you can run a you know fat stack of basic lands, and those are relatively free. Uh, you get to the three color, and it's harder to play more basics. Five colors. If you can run five basics or more, props to you. But yeah, just the the mana fixing itself. I've kind of said, and and even when Andrew Cummings was on the podcast a, w- a while ago, he emphasized if you're going to spend money in your decks, prioritize your mana base because then you can cast all your stuff when you want to. That is kind of being shown here in the in the the chart that we have, showing the more colors you add, the more expensive your deck is going to be.
0: Right, and I don't think it's just the dual lands that are informing some of this here, although that is certainly a big piece. It's also worthwhile to notice that as you expand options for more colors, you're going to have access to other colors with other awesome, 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 and therefore very expensive spells too. So if I'm playing a single color deck, like just say a mono blue deck, I might use, you know, a bunch of really expensive blue cards, but not all of the 60 plus cards that I'm going to be running aside from my lands, are going to be really high up there in price. But as soon as I add on black too, then I get to have access to all of blue's expensive cards and the really expensive cards from black. So really, it's no wonder that the costs would increase because then suddenly I have access to all of the really good cards. I get to use not just a Phyrexian Arena, but also now a Ristic Study and a Cyclonic Rift. And if I were to add in white, I'd also be able to use Teferi's Protection. Like naturally, you'd reach for those really expensive cards too as you increase in color.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. The thing that really shocked me by these numbers is the fact that a two-color deck is cheaper than a one-color deck. Yeah! That kind of really threw me off. And even if you discount the dual lands, which I don't think you entirely can, particularly because even the cheapest ones nowadays, like I said, are $200, you know, you're know, you still talking one shock land and one fetch land and one, you know, the the rest of the lands, the filter lands are all five-ish bucks. The pain lands are five-ish bucks. So that adds up really, really quickly, even once you get past the duels. But still, despite that, the monocolor decks are slightly more expensive. I'm not really sure, yeah, I'm
2: not really sure why that would be, either. And it's only by, you know,
1: $7 difference. And, you know, I look, I think about my my monocolor decks, I try to think, like, not just across one specific color, what kind of cards do I tend to run in those decks that might be pricey? And I like my mana doublers monocolor decks, I like my extra pointer lands, I like my Gauntlet at, like my Cage son but those are, you know, still relatively inexpensive cards, and I don't think those offset the mana base. So yeah, it, that that's really a fascinating.
2: I think it might have to do too with the the color distribution. What colors are running? What you know, the the green two color decks probably are going to be a little bit cheaper because there's so many green ramp cards that are nickels and dimes, and, you know, even like stuff like Cultivates been you know printed in the ground lately so it's much much cheaper than it used to be whereas you know if you're blue black you have to run the talismans those aren't you know they aren't cheap anymore um, so all the the cards you want to do with similar effects they are you know you are paying a little bit of a, of a premium to get them out of color
0: I wonder if also a monocolor deck, since each color does come with a certain number of weaknesses, when you're in a monocolor deck, you have to rely on colorless cards to shore up those weaknesses. So if you're playing a deck that can't remove enchantments, for example, you'd have to rely on very, very expensive cards like Ugin the Spirit Dragon, who can exile Things like enchantments to, to help you out, or things like Oblivion Stone, which used to also be very, very expensive. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why a monocolor deck would be slightly more expensive than a two color deck, because shoring up those weaknesses means that you have to rely on cards that are just by their ubiquity, therefore very
1: expensive. Yeah, that would make sense. And similarly, I wonder if there isn't an element of, you know, I'm playing this monocolor and the selection of really really strong cards is is obviously less than it is in you know two or three or four colors on up. So maybe that makes it easier to say, okay, I'm playing mono black. I can splurge on that demonic tutor because there's just you know I'm I'm limited in how many power cards I have access to since I'm one color. So I don't mind maybe spending a little bit extra money on that one bomb card and getting that 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 Yawgmus will or that demonic tutor or that VAM tutor. Whereas in a two color deck, maybe you'd be like, eh, I'll spend the money on my my dual land or excuse me my my shock land which is still going to be way less expensive than than demonic tutor because i would say i maybe do that a little bit in my mono color decks where i say okay i wouldn't maybe put this card in a two color deck but because i'm on mono and i need all the edge i can get i will maybe go buy that card so i wonder if that thought process maybe translates out to other people as well yeah that's a pretty good read All right, we're
0: going to move on to one more chart here. We're looking at a report of the average price of decks that include specific colors. And for the record, we're talking about decks that include other colors, too. So, for example, when we talk about white, we're just saying that this is the average price of a deck that includes white, such as a mono-white, a white-green, a white-blue, a white-blue-black, those kinds of things. So, Matt, do you mind running us through this next report? I'd love to. So... White decks, on average, or any deck that includes white in it, averages
2: about $656. A red decks average about 643 Blue decks step up a little bit to $759. Black decks average 717 And decks with green average $668.
1: Pretty fascinating. What do you guys think? I think the the white and the red being the cheapest isn't really shocking i think in part especially white i think we kind of saw this with the um, ultimate masters that has no white cards in the box topper set uh, there's just not a lot of white cards that are super super pricey so that probably on average drags the the color cost of those decks down and the same is true for red to a degree you know well, what are the super pricey red cards you can think of at the top of your head that are in commander decks there's not a lot of them you know wheel of Fortune, Maybe fork I mean I just can't think of a ton of expensive white cards or red cards whereas blue uh, black green I can although green isn't that far away from uh, from red either there's a pretty big gap between green and the top two, which is blue and black so I thought green would be closer to those two but
2: yeah I mean black black being expensive makes a lot of sense you have all your tutors yeah we've mentioned how you know people put a premium on all of those. But also, you know, some of the commanders can be a little pricey. And then just being able to do all the removal, all your wrath effects. You know, we talk about white having, you know, Wrath of God, Day of Judgment, all that kind of fun stuff. Damnation is the, the black version of Wrath of God. You know, it, it's a 20 dollar card compared to Wrath of God being, you know, three or four. So just little things like that, some of those color shifted types of cards, they, they add up and make a very big difference in why black would be a little more expensive.
0: Do you think that you would have predicted these? I guess I wasn't sure that I would have thought that blue would be the most expensive color on average.
1: I probably would have guessed blue just because there's a lot of pricey blue cards that see play, even exert, ignoring Time Twister. Force of Will is not a cheap card, and that's a really sought-after counterspell. Mana Drain is not a cheap card, and it's a really sought-after counterspell. Intuition sees a decent amount of play and would see more if it wasn't super expensive. Uh, Power Artifact and Transmute are both really expensive. There's a handful of enchantments out of Legends, uh, Land Equilibrium, Invoke Prejudice, that are super expensive, and they're not maybe in as played as those other ones, but they do see some play. So I think there's there's a lot of really high price tag blue cards out there that show up in decks, even newer stuff. You know, Omniscience is not a super cheap card, or um, you know, Jace the Mind Sculptor, even though he's maybe not uh, an amazing EDH card. He has that name. and people I think people like to run Jace yeah. just because it's kind of that signature card. So I just think there's there's a lot of high price tag blue cards. So that doesn't really shock me there either.
2: I was say, I think you hit it on the head. You know, you have stuff like Force of Will and Man Drain, stuff that has been reprinted fairly recently. Uh, so players have their hands on them. You know, they're, they're, they're in decks. Um, and that all adds – right, and that adds up. And I mean, we talk about one of the most played cards in the format, one that we, you know, collectively may not like a whole lot. But obviously – the player base does but you know cyclonic rift is 15 20 bucks ristic study right, is not yeah. a dollar card anymore right.
1: Propaganda's, you know yeah, $5 exactly card so i don't it.
2: i don't think so much you know a lot of these averages are coming from you know all those time twisters and all the reserve list cards that we've talked about already because the, the average deck is 759 for for blue decks that's a, a quarter <laughs> a quarter of a time twister so i think it's just all those little things that just are very very popular just add up and and obviously lead to blue being the most expensive like the cyclonic rifts your your uh rustic studies those are the types of cards that you know all those 10 to 20 dollar cards that just they're very very popular they're very very powerful and mono blue can't deal with everything so they just have to draw into it and so you have to play the, the most powerful things to keep up in in a deck like mono blue or mono black
0: right and what i also wanted to say just like blue now that i'm thinking on it blue cards are the ones that i've myself noticed are perceptibly increasing in price over time i remember when cyclonic rift was two dollars and 99 cents and it's not that anymore i remember when i bought a bunch of ristic studies for five bucks each and it's not five bucks anymore like those are the cards that i actually like the cards in blue are the ones that i notice becoming more expensive over time and not necessarily i don't see a lot of the other cards and other colors increasing as dramatically in price over time so i think that also kind of like yeah maybe i probably should have seen it coming that blue offers very expensive cards you've got cryptic command and, and such like that so it kind of i guess is no wonder that it would end up being the on average most expensive color to include in an edh deck
1: yeah for sure and, and I think, too, Joe, you mentioned the price having gone up on a lot of those. I mean, it's gone kind of up even more than you were talking about. Uh, me talk, I was talking about that, that first game I played with the guy who dropped the Candle Albert early on. Well, when I got to the shop that night, I was short like four or five cards for the deck I was going to play. So I bought them from the shop, two of which were cards you mentioned. One was Propaganda and one was Rifting Study. And they were both sub-dollar. And this was Return to Ravnica block time. So I got both those cards at under a buck at the time. And now they're both, you know, Propaganda's closing in on five, risk Studies closing in on 10. So yeah, they've not just gone up a couple of dollars. They've gone up three or four fold in the last couple of years.
2: And it makes a lot of sense now why none of us are, you know, working in the stock market
0: field.
1: Right. (laughs) We're terrible at
0: this. Alrighty, so let's finish up with one last report. And this is the average deck price by color identity. Dana, can you take us through it?
1: Uh, sure. So the the top three are all four-color decks. Uh, the average uh, price by color identity is uh, number one most expensive is black, green, red, blue. Um, that's at $1,083. Uh, the second one is black, green, blue, white at 1060 And then we have black, red, blue, white, which is at $1,009. Followed by five color at one thousand three, and the first deck in that top five below thousand dollars is black green blue. I guess we really shouldn't be surprised. So
0: the number one most expensive on average is a white list deck. After that, a red list deck. After that, a green list deck. So basically, Brea. Right. After that, yeah. we've got a five color, and then we have Soltai. People do not like Warros. No, they don't. Yep, and well, you no, know, they we, do
1: not. And we did mention there's also a, just a lack of expensive cards in those colors.
0: Right, and in fact, when we scroll all the way down to the bottom of this particular report, we can see that the average deck price for a Boros deck is at 325. The very bottom of the heap for the color identity report.
2: So what you're saying is you could have your own pod of Boros decks for the price of a Yidris <laughs> deck.
0: Yeah, yeah. Effectively, yeah. What do you guys make of all these? I mean, we've already discussed that multicolor definitely can make something a lot more expensive. But are there any particular color identities that are very expensive that stood out to you? People are playing good stuff in black, green, and blue, etc. decks.
1: Uh, Pretty much, I think. I mean, number one, land base is a lot of that. Um, The one thing that stood out for me is the very first mono-colored deck. Well, you also have colorless. Colorless is, I think, in the seven slot, and mono-blue is in the ten slot. So that kind of jumped out because you assume the mana base is going to, or uh, the land base, excuse me, is going to be a pretty big component of that. And there's, there's a four-color deck, you know, five slots below colorless and seven slots below mono blue, or excuse me, inverse that, seven below colorless and five below mono blue. So that's, there's clearly a lot of other cards aside from just lands making that difference.
0: Right. So maybe to try and help out, since I know there's a whole lot of numbers that listeners can't really see, we started off with the whiteless being the top most expensive average deck, then redless being after that. We had greenless, then five-color, then soltie. Following those, we have esper, colorless, grixis, blueless, followed by mono-blue, then followed by Teamer of all things, and then after that, Jeskai. So we do get a pretty interesting line down there. After those initial four and five color things, it kind of feels, I don't know, scattered to me. And for the record, we're ranging from average costs of about $1,000 down to about 800 down to about the 600 range or so for the Jeskai. So we definitely got a lot of mix down there.
2: Yeah, I think a recurring theme is it's going to be expensive to play blue black, so you probably shouldn't do that. Just play green white. You'll you'll save a lot of money and you'll have more fun anyways.
0: That's true. Blue black shows up in a whole lot of these from all of the four color decks, but then also Sultai and Esper and Grixis and such. So that's a good thing to note.
1: And it doesn't even have to really be super expensive. I think there's just a lot of really popular, also simultaneously very expensive cards. So like you know, if you happen to be playing black in your deck and you happen to have a Demonic Tutor sitting at home in a binder from when you were playing in junior high, well, suddenly your deck price goes up by putting that $40 Tutor in there. Or if you happen to have an intuition that you picked up somewhere on the road and you're playing blue and that just goes in your deck, that's going to immediately jack up the, co- the, the cost of your blue deck. Whereas I don't think there's anything in white. You know, you're, if you're going to accidentally toss in that land tax, well, that's, you know, a $10 card nowadays. Like, there's just not a lot of things in a white that do that in red, you know, maybe Wheel of Fortune, like I said, but that's really it, whereas there's half a dozen cards that you might just have lying around in black or blue that you can just throw on your deck. Even if you're not trying to like be a super powerful deck, that's going to skew those numbers, because the cards themselves are so expensive. That makes sense. I also
0: found it kind of interesting when looking all the way down at the bottom of this report. So we saw that mono blue is definitely up there. as very expensive. The average cost of a mono blue deck is about $687. But then down near the bottom of the list, we see a jump from the mono black decks, which are average about $503. After that, you've got green, average $444. Excuse me, average $440. Uh, Then mono red, average $432. And then you've got a couple of other things like black-red, black-white, mono-white, green-red, and red-white, which all round out around the like, 400 and sub-400 area. So it was interesting to see all of those monocolored decks down there.
2: I mean, it makes sense because basics are are cheap. Like I, like I said before, colorless decks being the highest monocolor, quote-unquote, uh, decks to play. I mean, before wastes were printed, there wasn't a way to play basics. Like, if you couldn't have any colored mana unless like your buddies were cool about it and let you play a bunch of basic forests in your karn silver golem deck it was really really expensive to find all the the colorless only lands um so it it is it's surprising but it's not seeing colorless being the the most expensive mono-color
0: deck so uh, if I'm also just continuing to focus on the uh the the bottom of this list are you guys surprised by the Uh, the two color pairs that show up at the bottom of the list. So Rakdos, Orzov, Gruul, and of course Boros. Are any of those surprising to you?
1: I'm a little bit surprised to see Gruul at second to last. Um, I don't know why that is, but I I, I just assume green is strong. And I guess for some reason mentally, I assume that means there's expensive cards in there. And there is, but like if you think about it, you know, what are the big pricey green bombs out there? Food Chain, you know, Natural Order, sees a lot of play, Crater Hoof seedborne mews, but those aren't on the price level that you get when you're talking black or blue. But yeah, I, I'm actually surprised that that green or red is more expensive than say Selesnia.
0: And something I guess what's interesting to me is that I don't personally feel that these are necessarily the most budget friendly colors. And that's the thing that sticks out to me. Like it's, I think, hard to play red white on a budget because a lot of things like artifacts or colorless cards like Ugin can help shore up some of your weaknesses, for example. But I think it's really easy to play green red on a budget like very, very easy. I've seen a Xenagost deck for under $30 that completely walloped me, and yet it's the second to last in terms of most expensive on average. That's the kind of stuff that really stood out to me, and I just wanted to put that out there because these numbers shouldn't necessarily be an indication of ease of playing necessarily. I think that those are, like green, red versus red, white are very, very different creatures, and yet they're right next to each other on this list near the bottom. So I don't think it's so much an ease of playing, but it
2: might be an ease of winning, Uh, People that are going to spend more than, you know, the $350 or so on these, the average Boros deck, average Gruel deck, I think people that are going to spend that much money are going to be trying to win. So they're going to be playing color combinations that might be a little easier to do that with. Instead of playing Gruel, they might be playing Teamer and add blue because they want the card draw. Instead of Boros, they might be adding, you know, playing Naya instead or Jeskai because that. The people that spend more, they're obviously a little more invested. Maybe they take a little more pride in in winning and beating their friends. So I think that might be a little bit of a factor. You know, we always talk about Boros as like the new kid colors, haha. Ha, you know, whatever. That's not exactly true. Like Joey, like you said, uh, there's some extremely powerful things that you can be doing in Boros that aren't necessarily cheap either. But it's just kind of that stigma of the more experienced the more invested players they stick away from Boros for all the reasons we covered in that, that one specific
0: episode. Something also that I find quite noteworthy when we're looking over the least expensive on average decks is that it actually matches up almost perfectly with the most popular guilds when we did that reviewing Ravnica data episode back on episode 25. So we can see that Boros on that uh, on that episode we saw that Boros was of course the least popular guild, but then just above it in number 9 was Rakdos, after that was Orzov, and after that was Gruul. So those were the bottom 4 popular guilds. And when we look at the you know, expensiveness of those guilds too, they also all show up on the bottom too. I guess I kind of hadn't anticipated that the least popular guilds would also end up being the least expensive. That's a pretty interesting correlation.
1: Yeah, and it's one that kind of makes sense when you think about the popularity of Ravnica as well. I think there's a little bit of probably bleed over there with the, you know, commanders that are popular from the most popular plane and the commanders that aren't popular from the most popular plane kind of translates a little bit to this list as well. Yeah, I just suppose
0: it's a sign that you know prices are certainly doing what they're supposed to be doing. The market is working, and prices are following the popularity of cards.
1: Yeah, I guess. Uh, And one thing I'll I'll briefly note: I'm not sure how much of a difference it makes, but you see the enemy color pairs are are, are, seem to be way lower on the list. Um, Part of that might also be there's a lot less uh, dual lands available in enemy color pairs. You don't have the cycling lands from Cat. You don't have uh, battle lands metal for Zendikar. Um, you don't have the Shadows of Innistron lands. You don't have, there's at least one more set. the That broken cycle out of Time Spiral. Um, you don't have the Battle Bond lands either. You know, none of those are crazy expensive, but like a lot of those are 5 ish dollars. And if you're talking about four or five of those lands that you can't get to, and in the case of the Time Spiral cycle, um, Horizon Canopy is crazy expensive. Uh, growing up with the Burnswills isn't cheap either. So you've got... Just another, you know, easily if you're going for like the best land base possible in a two-color deck, you just don't have access to 25 or $30 worth of lands in enemy colors that you do in in ally colors.
2: Yeah, and we kind of touched on that, you know, when we were talking about the guilds, uh, the most played guild gates were the enemy color gates, so that does make a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, all of this price information is definitely interesting to take a look at. And again, I think that we should remind folks that you don't need a really expensive deck to win. I mentioned that I've been trounced by a hyper-budget Xena uh, deck before, like these are just interesting things to note when looking at the popularity of stuff and the prices associated with the popularity of stuff too. So we'll make sure that we attach all of these reports when we post the show so that you can follow along with all of the numbers. It's pretty interesting stuff and I hope that it's enlightening for folks just as, as much as it was for us because it was pretty darn fun to talk about. Let's round out the show now by challenging some statistics. I'll start off here and in keeping with the theme that you don't necessarily need really expensive cards to win, the card that I'm going to challenge that is seeing a ton of play on EDH Rec that I don't think deserves to see quite that much play is the card Vampiric Tutor. We all know what this thing is, the one black mana instant that searches your library for a card, deals two damage to you, and puts that card on top of your library. That shows up in, and I did not anticipate this, 28,468 decks, that is so many decks, that's so much, and you know what, I just don't think that you need it, it shouldn't be in that high of demand, it's like a $50 card right now, and while it's bonkers cool, you don't necessarily need a tutor, oftentimes I find that games are more fun without tutors, and I just think that 28,000 is a whole lot, so everyone should maybe slow down a little bit, some of these expensive cards are not always what they're all worked up to be.
1: Um, I am a fan of Vampire Tutor as a card. I mean, I get why people are running it. But I will agree with you just to say that it doesn't make, for the most part, your play experience any more fun. It just lets you get to your win condition. So I guess it helps you win games quickly. But I don't know if it necessarily adds a lot to most games. You know, I run it, but uh, if people ran less of them, or if I ran less of them, I don't know if I would... Particularly miss it either so
0: yeah exactly that's that's basically
1: my mindset too all right dana what's your challenge of stats my challenge set is the other end uh from you joey it's a it's a it's a cheap card that i think should be in more decks and that's pestilence oh. it's currently in just over 2100 decks on edh rec and for those who don't know pestilence is an enchantment that hasn't seen reprint i don't think since sixth edition it's two and two black and at the end of the turn, if there are no creatures in play, you sacrifice Pestilence. But when it is in play, you can spend one black and have it deal one damage to each creature and each player. Uh, I ran it for a long time in a mono-black deck. Just being able to sweep the board of, uh, of creatures of a certain toughness, um, and you can kind of tweak that to, to your will is really, really useful, particularly if you're not playing in a token deck and if you're playing a, in a deck with any large-sized bodies at all, where you can oftentimes sweep the board of anything, three, three toughness or less, and not touch your own stuff. It's really, really, really useful. Um, and then there's also a lot of weird corner case stuff, like if you're playing in a plus-one counter deck and you happen to be running, and I've forgotten the name of the card, um... But there's like the like the ferocious or not ferocious. What's the what's the thing from Kaladesh with the dinosaurs where they got counters when they took damage? Do you mean the name? Sorry, Ixilon, yeah. <laughs> I think it was it not called Ferocious? Was it Ferocious? It was for uh no ferocious. No, ferocious was, was, was a thing. Power from, for um, more. Yeah. Enraged,
2: that there was There it. we go. There yeah, we go. I
1: yeah. I I got so wrapped up in talking about pestilence I forgot the other words. So yeah, things like that, like if you're playing in a, in a deck that has access to black and you've got a bunch of enrage triggers, being able to buff your guys and make them stronger is very, very useful as well. It's just a card that I think does a lot of things and doesn't see nearly enough play. Yeah, that
0: sounds um, really, really annoying to play against.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some decks that you, you have to remove the Pestilence or you can't do anything.
0: Right, yeah, that's, well, that's um, really, really mean. So as long as we're talking about really, really mean cards, let's move on to Mean Mr. Morgan. What are you challenging? So I don't really have a mean card so much, but
2: I do have a card that did get kind of expensive. It's getting reprinted in Ultimate Masters. And one of the more popular, you know, decks from this last precon batch uh, is Lord of Windgrace, which is that lands matter, get rogue monsters always, you know, been fairly popular. One of my favorite decks, angry omnath, they all like lands and to quote Mr. Schultz, uh, lands, death and land death. So what's something that all those cards have in common well, a they're green, but two, they like life from the loam. Uh, So life from the loam is currently in 10,633 decks. And I think that number needs to go up because that card is very, very powerful. Uh, Just those three decks alone, those three commanders, uh, they're all going to soak up a lot of those copies. The card got up to, you know, what was almost $30 I want to say. So with ultimate masters coming out, if you have one of those decks and you don't have a copy or, four for uh, of life from the loam definitely look to pick those up so it's one and a green uh it has dredge i think it's dredge three but then you can cast it uh and you grab three lands out of your graveyard into your hand so even if you're playing stuff like you know borborigamos enraged or however you say his name angry bobo if you will uh that card is great because it gets you three lightning bolts all sorts of lands matter decks maybe people are kind of priced out we just talked about how gruel was the second least expensive color combination out there maybe because stuff like life from the loan maybe got priced out of some people's budgets it's gonna get pushed back down a little bit so while it's cheap everybody should take advantage of that because it's a very very powerful card that a lot a lot a lot of decks will be looking to play
0: and I would argue that you don't even necessarily need to be a explicitly land-based deck in order to take advantage of Life from the Loam because of how much stuff it can put into your graveyard. A deck like Sadisi or Marin will also be take, they can take advantage of that too. If you've got cycling lands, getting into a cycling loop with Life from the Loam and then getting lands back to cycle mm-hmm. to draw extra cards, like it's just so much value that it's disgusting. So yeah, that card's hardcore good.
2: Or if you're one of those Joseph gordon It people, you know that has a, a Gaia's cradle, and somebody blows it up, it gets your cradle back, it puts it back into play, and then you can wasteland them back. So it's it's always a lot of fun.
1: I think it's only you can only do that if your Gaia's cradle is not sleeved. Oh, okay.
2: It's yeah, you, you got to take it out of the sleeve first, then let them you know scuff it up a little bit.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to have nightmares about this tonight. What a weird image to end the show on. <laughs> with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all?
2: So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5.
1: You can find me on the Twitter bird at Dana Roach. And you can hear me once a week on other show, Commander Central.
0: And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter, too, at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the EDHREC cast on Facebook and Twitter. We're doing a giveaway when EDHREC gets 5,000 likes and when the cast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter, so head on over there to smash those like buttons for a chance at a cool prize. You can also contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com and find us on iTunes, and if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast too. This podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's Community Content Spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. So the ten- Tennessee mudflap and the Missouri Compromise are both types of mullets. <laughs> that, that's just as disgusting as the other thing.
1: <laughs> Business up front, party back. It's the worst. It's the absolute worst. Uh, my relatives had mullets. They're dead now.